Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I like our changing world. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World, ko Alison Balance TNA. Coming up on the show, we are nutting out the chemical element nickel. But first, in the first three months of this year, New Zealanders spent nearly a quarter of a billion dollars on the pokies. You heard that right. $217 million, to be precise, in the first quarter of this year alone. Pokies, or slot machines as they're also known, are an electronic gaming machine, or EGM. There are more than 15,000 of them in casinos, pubs and arcades across New Zealand. More than half of New Zealanders who present each year as problem gamblers are addicted to the pokies. So what is it about them that's so compulsive? What are they doing to our brain and why do we become addicted to them? This is something that Retina Ramal, a PhD student in the School of Medicine at the University of Auckland, is investigating. And Sonia Slime meets her to find out more. It's a drizzly grey Tuesday afternoon in central Auckland and I'm about to head into a gaming lounge. To be honest... I've never been into one before. I can usually uh, once a week. You come here once a week? And how long will you play for? Until my budget runs out. And how long I've been here? One hour and a half. Time goes quickly when you're playing. What do you like about the game? I mean, is it the flashing lights? See the top of there? Yeah. See the top here? Jackpot. Yeah. Poking Machine is one of the most addictive forms of gambling worldwide. After heading to the gaming lounge, I met up with Retina Ramal. She's a PhD student from the School of Medicine at the University of Auckland. So I am looking at electronic gaming machines gambling and comorbidities such as depression, anxiety, alcohol use and also looking at decision making. So I'm doing a study understanding their experiences and the process that they go through from being a recreational gambler to a problem gambler. And it turns out that people don't just come back for the money, although I'm sure you already guessed that. Now, firstly, what is the difference between a recreational gambler and a problem gambler? Two different types of definitions. One's a clinical, where they meet certain points in DSM criteria to be a problem gambler. And the other is just a simple definition of creating a harm to yourself or to others around you that would consider as problem gambling as well. People are probably losing their houses, it's tearing families apart. They lose jobs, they do lose their everyday sort of settings as well. Will they keep coming back even though they've lost all of those things? Well, that's what the addiction is, I guess. Even though you do realise you're losing money and you're losing your house and family, they still come back. It's similar to alcohol and drug addiction now. If you are addicted, you would, no matter where, you, you would still find a machine to go and uh, spend your money. OK, so we know that this kind of gambling 
is a problem. So what is it about these games that makes people come back for more? Well, it comes down to how they're built. If you've seen the gaming machines inside, the audios, the videos and the... The flashing lights. The flashing lights. The noise. I imagine it's like your brain at a party and it can't stop dancing. It actually generates impulses in the reward system. There's also the near-miss event, when the game gives you the feeling that you're just about to win, and then you don't. There are other structures like losses disguised as wins. You put a dollar, you actually win one cent, but still makes the same sort of noises, like you're winning. So even if they are losing, it still gives you that auditory feedback. Back to the gaming lounge... And you know how we've been talking about people coming back for more? And for how many years have you been doing this once a month? I would say uh, 30 years. <laughs> and, and how often will you win something? Once a fortnight, something like that. But so it's something you look forward to? Not really. So we know why these games are addictive, but what are some of the other outcomes? The comorbidity is really high among people who gamble. So I found like at least one sort of psychological comorbidity in every gambler. It might be alcohol use, or depression or drug use or even anxiety. It's very high among people who gamble. Incidentally, for those people, when they're not gambling, they probably feel anxious that they need to go and then that anxiety is that then relieved by sitting at a machine playing Yeah, for some of them, that's how it starts. But for some of them, it might be the other way. Once they start gambling, the anxiety might be an effect of the gambling. So it could be the anxiety that takes them to gambling to skip that anxiety. anxiety. Because it is a form of pleasure, it's yeah. a release. So then when we're talking about, say, drug addiction or alcohol use, yeah. how does that come into play? Well, the cross-addiction, it, it is very high. The venues itself, like there is alcohol serving right next to the machines. So it's very easy for them to, oh, I'll just have a drink and sit on a machine, but then they do get addicted to that as well. So there's both addiction that's actually working at the same time. And similar to drug addictions, a lot of drugs actually create that urge, I guess, to they get insomnia and they just go to gaming machines and then they spend their time and money. Would you say that there's a certain type of person who's more prone to addiction for a start? There is lots of research that has gone into genetics and also neurological part of the studies nowadays. It can be genetics in their brain. They might have the role of dopamine, which is reward-seeking. So it might be more into that area. It can be many other reasons as well. How much will you bring? 300. You have to pay close attention to what you're doing when you press nah, the buttons? just press the button. You've got to be brain-dead to use them. And how long will you stay in here? Probably three hours. When I went into the gaming lounge, there was almost an equal split, slightly more men than women. So I wonder, are men more likely to become addicted to these games? Initially, it was suggested that women are more attracted to EGM than other form of gambling. And the gambling that actually requires skills, such as blackjack or the table games, that's where the men are more attracted. But I guess in terms of EGM gambling, both men and women are equally attracted, regardless of the gender. And it's very pretty much simple to play as well. You just put your machine, just press the buttons, there's no skills required. Yeah. How many people have you involved in your research and what are you actually looking for? 
So the first study, we collected about 128 individuals and we divided into recreational gamblers and problem gamblers based on our questionnaire. So we've divided them into two groups and we actually have similar number of women and men which is actually very good for us so we can actually compare in terms of gambling and other comorbidities. And the second study that we are doing is we're looking at EGM gambling and anxiety disorder, how they make decisions in actually real-life decision-making. Do you mean how the anxiety informs their decisions when they're gaming or in life in general? In life in general. So we are using a task called IO Gambling Task. Based on a real-life decision-making task, it incorporates learning, risk-taking, all that sort of decision-making that we do in actual real life. So we're using this task and we're looking at how they make decisions throughout the task. Maybe it is chasing loss, but they actually do make very risky decisions at the end of the task. So they're making more risky decisions in general. That might explain the chasing loss behaviour that they come back for more and they involve in alcohol use and also drug addictions, that sort of other addictions. That might be the trigger like they have more risky decision making compared to the normal individuals. I mean, even the concept of risky decisions It's not necessarily a bad thing, right, because entrepreneurs, they make risky decisions all the time and sometimes those pay off. From the information that they have, they they would still evaluate before making the decisions. That might be a case in our people who have gambling disorder. So the lack of evaluation, even though they are learning, they still... They are still tempted to make risky decisions. That might be the case. Within the either the set of questions that they were being asked, what were they related to? It is a test. There's four decks of cards, and there's two very risky ones. There's two advantageous ones, so they give out long-term advantage. And then they are asked to collect as much money as they want. And they keep on choosing the deck of cards until about 100, 200 trials. Just performing a task and then finding out the result at the end. And so what do you plan to do with that research? How is it going to be applied to, say, addiction services or how can it help? Because this isn't making is like an integral part of our life, everyday life. So knowing that could definitely help in health treatment services, finding out better treatment, because the relapse rate in gambling is very high compared to even other sort of disorders and addictions. While this is not your area, sort of looking at addiction to digital technology and you know kids starting games really early as well and addictions to iPads would you envisage that that later on is there a chance that those young people then are going to be easily susceptible to becoming addicted to gambling and online gaming and addiction to other online websites there it is increasing problem it could have an effect similar to gambling so early age as well because it's not part of my experience, it is very difficult for me to say this is going to happen, but it could definitely affect or have an impact for the later life. And it does show that starting gambling early in the age, like 18, has more effect compared to starting gambling later in the age, so that could actually impact as well. Because it then becomes habitual, right? Yeah, and your brain is still developing until the age of 25, so that could have an impact on your brain as well. Thanks, Retina. Retina Ramal is a PhD student in the School of Medicine at the University of Auckland, and that story was produced by Sonia Sly. 
Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori, hei hōtaka e pāna ki te pūtaio, te taio, me te kaupapa o te ora. I'm Alison Balance, and this is Our Changing World on RNZ. Now, it's time to explore the periodic table of chemical elements again with Professor Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology. In this episode of the Elemental Podcast, we are nattering about nickel. Which gets the name nickel from the German nickel for Satan or the devil. That's yet another excellent elemental name. (laughs) It does remind me of an element that we've already done. Wasn't your favourite, she's thinking hard here, favourite element cobalt named after a goblin or something like that? Yes, indeed. Cobalt meaning goblin. Yep. And very appropriately, nickel just happens to sit right next door to cobalt on the periodic table. Knowing that, let's have a look, as we always do at the beginning, at some vital statistics for this element. Elemental symbol Ni, atomic number 28. It was discovered in 1751, and as everybody knows, it is a metal. Now, North Americans, and I'm thinking both Canada and the United States, have nickel coins. So the obvious question is... Are nickels made of nickel? A very good question. So the nickel, for those of you who don't know, is the name given to either the American or the uh, Canadian five-cent piece. If you are talking about the uh, US nickel, depending on the year it was minted, it certainly does contain nickel uh, in anything from ratios of actually 0% to 25%. And in fact, uh, from those numbers, you can figure out that nickels are mostly something else. And in fact, they're made predominantly of copper. So the US five cent coin's got a bit of a history here. So originally it was called a half dime and it was made out of all things silver, which seems a bit ridiculous these days. It was worth a bit more in those days. (laughs) It would have had to have been, yes. (laughs) So we're talking back in the days of the Civil War here. And um, so obviously silver and uh, some other metals became scarce. And in fact, most coins went out of circulation around that time. But at the end of the Civil War, 1866, the five cent piece came back in the form of an alloy of copper and nickel. But it wasn't a big success. Oh, that's because people like the silver. It felt more valuable. (laughs) And so because of that, they went back to the silver half dime. Oh, phew. (laughs) And that was minted until 1873, and it was continued in circulation after that. But, and this is the brilliant story, 1883, after much lobbying by the nickel mining magnate Joseph Wharton, a new nickel alloy five-cent coin was introduced. And this time it went into wide circulation and people called it the nickel. And didn't Wharton do well out of it then, (laughs) with a guaranteed market for his nickel? He was literally making money. (laughs) Oh, to be a lobbyist. (laughs) Where does nickel come from? Nickel originally came from space, an awful lot of it. And uh, what we find is that nickel is quite abundant in meteorites. And it is thought that quite a lot of the early terrestrial nickel came to Earth through uh, meteorite impacts. And indeed, one such meteorite, or in fact, it may have been a comet containing bits of meteorite, was thought to have landed near a town called Sudbury in Ontario, Canada. And um, this contributed to this area being at one time the largest source of nickel in the world. In celebration of this, the town of Sudbury is the home of the thing called the Big Nickel. And this is a replica Canadian five-cent piece which weighs in at a staggering 13,000 kilograms and it's nine metres in diameter. It seems a very odd thing to have, but 
Who are we to talk? After all, New Zealand's very own Oakuni has a giant statue of a carrot. <laughs> now, you'd think the least they could do with this uh, big nickel was make it out of nickel, but unfortunately, it's actually made of stainless steel. Oh, it's probably a fraud. some nickel. But <laughs> yeah. In terms of nickel let's say in the planet rather than on the planet, uh, it is thought that the molten core of the Earth is around about 10% nickel, which would in fact make it easily one of the most abundant elements uh, on Earth. But in the Earth's crust, it ranks only 23rd in abundance. Apart from these nickel coins, the Sudbury pretend coin aside, (laughs) what do we do with the stuff? Just like in the coins, uh, we find nickels really useful in other alloys, in fact. Nickel is used in stainless steel, for example, and that's generally in combination with chromium. And um, because it doesn't corrode, it's often used in things like rocket engines and gas turbines. There are some other really quite interesting alloys of nickel, and so there's one called Invar, and that is 64% iron and 36% nickel, And this is really interesting because when it's heated, it doesn't expand. That's a very, very rare thing. There's an alloy that many of you will have heard of called nichrome, and that, surprisingly enough, is nickel and chromium with between 11 and 22% chromium, and that's used in toaster elements. My favourite of the lot is a thing called nitinol, and that's 55% nickel and 45% titanium, and it is also known as memory metal. And this is really cool. I've actually played around with some of this myself. You get a wire of nitinol. You put it into a particular shape. You then heat it up to sort of set it in that particular shape. And then once you've done that, you can straighten it out once it's cooled. And then you heat it up again and it adopts the shape that you set it to. It really is quite impressive just heating this thing up and watching it bend into any sort of shape. It does, in fact, find some use in very, very lightweight spectacle frames as precisely for this reason it bounces back to its original shape. Oh, I think they market those as unbreakable glass frames or something, don't they? I think people who've got them love them. (laughs) Um, I've worn glasses all my life and there's no such thing as an unbreakable glass frame, but... (laughs) Oh, well. Now, Nicol, I associate that name with batteries. Yes, indeed. It's extensively used in batteries. So you've got your nickel-cadmium rechargeable and you've got your NIMH, which is nickel-metal hydride rechargeable batteries. And, in fact, despite the name, it's also used in lithium-ion batteries. Got to wave my biology flag. Yoo-hoo! Any biological roles going on here? Oh, plenty of biological roles. It's got lots of them. Most importantly, it is found in a number of enzymes. And a bit of an interesting history here, because one of those enzymes won a guy by the name of James Sumner the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1946. And... He, in fact, was the first person to show that you could crystallise an enzyme. And specifically, the enzyme that he used in this case was a thing called jack bean urease. Whoa, whoa. There's an enzyme called jack bean urease? (laughs) What a weird name. Um, It came from a thing called the jack bean. His name wasn't jack bean, I guess. I get it now. (laughs) And so jack bean urease is a nickel-containing enzyme. So that won this fellow, James Sumner, the Nobel Prize in chemistry. And interesting fact about him, when he was 17, he went out hunting one day And unfortunately, he lost his lower left arm. Somebody shot him by accident. Uh, They needed to amputate his lower left arm. Unfortunately, he was left-handed, and so he had to learn to do everything right-handed, which is quite remarkable 
I guess, at that age, at that relatively late stage in life. Clearly didn't stop him going on to have a sterling career in chemistry, though. No, absolutely. Really, really impressive. What does this urease enzyme do? In humans, in fact, it uh, converts urea to carbon dioxide and ammonia. And unfortunately for us, it allows a nasty little thing called Helicobacter pylori to live in our stomachs. And that's where we get stomach ulcers from. <laughs> yes, but discovering that that bacteria caused stomach ulcers won somebody else, an Australian, a Nobel Prize as well. Indeed. His name escapes me right at the moment. Barry yes, somebody. He, and, and he did a lovely little experiment to show that too. It was, it was chemistry at its finest, that was. <laughs> um, digressing, of course. Urease is one of many nickel enzymes. So there's other important ones that occur in microbes. And these are very important in the cycling of carbon through various stages in the atmosphere. And so what we find is that some of these enzymes convert carbon monoxide to carbon dioxide. And then another enzyme can take carbon dioxide through to acetate. And yet another one can take acetate through to methane. And so this generates essentially a cycle of carbon-containing compounds. And this involves millions of tonnes of these compounds annually. Thanks, Alan. That was Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology and the RNZ Elemental podcast. To listen to anything from tonight's show again, or to find the web features which have handy links, head along to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Click on the Podcasts and Series tab at the top of the webpage to find plenty of other RNZ podcasts as well. You can also subscribe to Our Changing World and Elemental as podcasts in all the usual apps. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Radio Public. And on Twitter and Facebook, you can find us as RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. Until next time, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Mauri ora. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.